Hey, thinkers, welcome to this week's thinking podcast, which will now be renamed to the Human Enhancement Podcast. Uh, after our Nutribox rebranding the human, we might as well update the podcast name as well and really take advantage of our HVMN cool spelling and brand. Um, I'm really excited to introduce our guest this week, Dr. Cameron Seppa. Uh, you may have seen his work through Omada Health, where he was a founding team member and ended up running a lot of the clinical research there. And while he was, uh, you know, on more on the entrepreneurial side, also was a professor at the uh, UCSF uh, School of Medicine, uh, teaching clinical psychiatry, psychiatry, a weird, it's a weird word to to, to, to say. Um, and recently he's been starting off on his new entrepreneurial journey with Actualize. So we'll get into all these different topics. So Cameron, good to, good to see you again. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah. So, um, I mean, let's just step back. I, I think that one of the interesting things that I'm excited to talk to you about is that we've had clinicians come onto the show and I think they were very sort of old school, uh, in terms of talking about, uh, I know some of the struggles with uh, the constraints of a traditional practice, and I think you see companies like Omada Health, uh, you've seen companies like Verda Health coming in this new sort of hybrid model of having, you know, that 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 rigorous medical background, but applying some of the latest techniques from digital health, from like from from software. So I'm curious to get your your take on that evolution and how you got plugged into that space. Oh, yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll kind of walk through a little bit of my academic background and how I sort of found myself to be a reluctant techie. I sort of accidentally stumbled into the space. Um, so I did my undergrad at Harvard. I studied psychology and neuroscience. I was always fascinated by mind-body medicine. And so I did a lot of really interesting research on like Tibetan Buddhist monks and how do you use um, audio to actually enhance cognition. Um, I actually worked in the Harvard Cognitive Neuroscience Lab, and we're really interested in these these questions like how do you regulate your emotions how do you enhance cognition because we were working at the time with scientists from nasa mm -hmm. and we we're developing these little cognitive batteries so that when an astronaut for instance goes out on a spacewalk how do we make sure they're cognitively intact so they're not going to go and mess things up right. and so we, we developed these little cognitive batteries back on uh, pdas which kind of dates how old this research is um, and find ways of potentially making sure that they're they're cognitively intact and then how do you enhance cognition through techniques like meditation? That's how, that's how we ended up studying the monks. Okay. Um, and then, you know, when I was finishing college and thinking about sort of my next steps, um, I was uh, really interested in this intersection between psychology and medicine. And so I went to grad school at UCLA, which had the top program in clinical psychology at the time. And I ended up studying this really interesting niche field called psychoneuroimmunology, hmm. which is really just um, kind of a big word that, that, uh, really describes how do emotions influence immune system function. Because if you talk back to, you know, psychologists and immunologists in the 80s, they've never talked to one another because immunologists believe that the immune system was something that was kind of this black box and emotions don't influence it at all. Right. Now, anecdotally, you know, people know that when they're stressed, they're more likely to get a cold. And there was a bunch of research that was emerging that was showing this. And this guy came, named uh, Norman Cousins came along, um, and he had an immune condition. I believe it was rheumatoid arthritis. And he found that, for instance, when he watched like comedy shows, for a few hours his pain would go away. Hmm. And so he became really interested and actually spearheaded the, the funding of a lot of research in this new field of PNI or psychoneuroimmunology. Right. 
So I actually spent my doctorate studying, interestingly, breast and prostate cancer patients who were undergoing chemotherapy and radiation. And what I was actually looking at were their levels of happiness. And happiness is one of those things where it's kind of a loosey-goosey field and, you know, hard scientists don't really take it seriously. And so I wanted to do the most hard science research that I could. And so what we did is we actually took um, blood tests um, because they were doing routine blood tests as part of their cancer treatment every month and looking at markers of inflammation, which is a marker of how well your immune system is doing. And it was fascinating because the individuals that were most happiest had distinctly levels, uh, distinctly different levels of inflammation for months. It predicted their inflammatory response to treatment for over the course of uh, like months and mm. potentially a year. Um, and so it was one of the first uh, papers on this topic published in Brain Behavior and Immunity. Um, and it really showed this sort of mind-body connection that sort of people were talking about. And so um, it, was, it was really fascinating to be able to, in a really hard science way, to sort of document this and show yes, How are you measuring happiness? So, yeah, I, mean, I think that's a great intuition where I think a lot of biohacking has been being inspired by intuitive notions, right? I think, I think a lot of like fasting has come from religious traditions and then like meditation, like, like the notion of happiness. I think we all intuitively know, yeah, when you're happier, you, you feel better. So I'm curious, like, what were your measures for happiness? Totally. Well, you know, in psychology, we use a lot of subjective self-report measures. Okay. And some people are like, well, you know, how accurate is that? Because right. it is subjective. And you're like, well, happiness in and of itself is a subjective phenomenon. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But what we would do is we'd repeatedly ask people the same question and then use statistical techniques to make sure that it's a reliable measure. And the interesting thing is, even though these patients were undergoing chemotherapy and radiation, their levels of happiness actually didn't change very much as we thought they would. Hmm. They were very stable. And so what we were measuring was uh, what we call a trait measure. So as opposed to a state measure where you know your happiness may fluctuate a little bit on a day-to-day basis, we're looking more at like asking questions like, are you overall satisfied with your life? And this is like a one to 10 measure or it's like marking a Yeah, line. like a Likert scale. Okay, and, okay. and when you ask someone a, a fundamental question like that, like, are you content with your life? That's not going to change as much on a day-to-day basis as compared to, well, how's your mood today? Right. Um, and so uh, it was not only a very reliable measure, we asked this question probably eight times over the course right. of the year, very stable, but it, it very distinctly um, predicted their immune system function. Hmm. Do you think it's... I mean, so it could be a correlation, or do you think it's causative, right? Because like you could imagine that, you know, a, 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 a question would be, well, if they're healthier, maybe they feel happier. So, what, what, you know, what is the, what is driving it? Is you know, is the horse driving it or the cart driving it? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of the research that we were doing is very basic science research. Right. First, establish that there is an association, and then I think sort of the next step for that sort of field of research was to start to do intervention studies, right. right? Like, can we actually enhance happiness? And by doing so, show that happiness is immuno-enhancing, right? So right. can we buffer people against getting sick? Or especially in a, a context where, you know, when you're getting cancer treatment, you really want your immune system be, to be as strong and resilient as possible. Yeah. Um, and so the, the challenge was that, you know, that research was going to take 10, 20 years to sort of become, you know, a little bit more mainstream. It was right. very cutting-edge stuff that we were doing, and it wasn't sort of relevant to clinical practice. And so when I was sort of finishing my career, um, uh, my training at UCLA, I, I went and did an internship and residency and a fellowship in a field called behavioral medicine. Okay. Behavioral medicine is basically the intersection of psychology and medicine, where we focus on treating chronic diseases with psychological and behavioral approaches. So I was doing a lot of work in obesity, a lot of work in diabetes. Interesting. And, you know, these are seen as metabolic 
diseases, and they are to some extent, but if you really think about it from an etiological perspective, meaning that what's the root cause of it, if you look at the rates of obesity and diabetes over the last few decades, they've skyrocketed way yep. more than our genetics would predict, right? So 37% of adult Americans have prediabetes, 12% have diabetes or type, un, undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. So if you think about it, this is the first time in human history that the majority of adult Americans have abnormal blood sugar levels, Yeah, which is incredibly sad. It means if you are have normal blood sugar levels for the first time in history, you are a minority. It's a minority to be healthy, which is shocking, right? Yeah. I mean, this is something that like people don't test. I, you know, that's something we measure a lot at, you know, in our community at human. So I've brought in friends to test their blood glucose fasted and, and I remember one of my friends, uh, you know, came out pre-diabetic. You know, his fasted blood sugar was over 100 milligrams restly. So I was like, hey, like, he had no idea. You know, like, people just don't have any idea because they're not measuring it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And knowledge is power, you know. Yeah. Um, so I was working in the VA system at the time. Right. And they were doing a lot more testing. Right. They're, you know, they're sort of ahead of well, the curve. Before that, like, so what would you claim would be, like, the root cause? Because you're saying it's, like, not necessarily, well, it's associated with met metabolism. Yeah. So what, what would you say is the primal cause then? That is a, that's a great question. So I, I have a little bit of a, um, a broader view on, on sort of what's the, the root cause. Um, one, I actually think of sort of uh, obesity and diabetes as actually a, a condition of addiction. And this is sort of a, a psychological perspective. And this is this comes from also, you know, Adamata Health, the last company that I was involved in starting. You know, we treated 100,000 patients and helped them lose a million pounds. Spent a lot of time both directly uh, working with these individuals and looking at their data. Yeah. And so at a high level, what is Omada Health again? Oh, yeah. So just to give a little yeah. bit of background. So Omada Health um, is an enterprise health company here located in San Francisco. Um Omada creates online behavior change programs to help people lose weight in order to avoid diabetes and heart disease. Yeah. So um, it's a technology platform, um, and this sort of I'll, I'll tell both the, the story of uh, Omada and how it links actually to my fellowship. So when I was at the VA, uh, I started a um, behavioral diabetes management program. What that means is these were very sick patients. These are low-income veterans in the Chicagoland area who had type 2 diabetes. Their blood sugar levels, if you're familiar with A1C, were in the double digits. So these okay. are sky-high blood sugar Ooh. levels. So like and normal range is like under, what, 6.2 or something, right? Yeah, 6.5, six, you're considered yeah, to have diabetes. Right. And these people were like at 10. The endocrinologists had given up on these folks. Yeah. You know, They keep telling them, take their meds, and they're not taking their meds. And so they'd send them to me and say, hey, fix these people. <laughs> and what you realize, though, when working with these people is a lot of people had untreated psychological conditions mm. or environmental problems that were getting in the way of taking care of their treatment. Like most of my patients actually had depression and were untreated. And so why would they care about taking their medications if they are questioning sort of their reason to live, right? And so we'd make sure that their mental health needs are taken care of. And we sort of do this intensive group therapy for them to start to get their lives together. And so I was a clinician running this program. I was also doing research on the treatment outcomes. And I found that most of my patients in going through this program, their blood sugar levels would drop about 20 points. Um, which is very effective for people who are very resistant. I already had patients, for instance, who had amputations already. They were that far along wow. the diabetes spectrum. Okay. And when I'd ask them, what's your motivation for being in the group? I, you know, I'll never forget when a patient of mine said, it's, it's to not lose the other leg. And it's very heartbreaking for me because I was like, wow, I wish I worked with you five, 10 years ago so that you wouldn't sort of be at this place. And I wish you had both of your legs, you right. know? And that sort of sparked my interest in, well, obviously this treatment's effective. How can we make it a little bit more preventative to start treating these people, you know, 
earlier down the line before they sort of get sick. So that was one part of it. The other part of it was I had another patient who came to me after group one day and he said, hey doc, I can't come back to treatment anymore. And I said, why not? You know, he was doing really well, was seen as sort of a leader in the group. And he said, it's not my turn to have the car. And I said, wait, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I share my car with five family members and uh, I can't take it every week. And that was sort of this amazing heartbreaking moment for me when I was like, well, this is not a psychological problem, it's not a medical problem. This is literally a socioeconomic problem, yeah. right? And I can't treat that as a doctor. Right. And so what it, at the same time, the VA was actually being very progressive in using technology. So we were giving these digital blood pressure devices, sending people home with them, and whenever their blood pressure got too high, a nurse would call them. And we were doing telemedicine, so I was seeing patients through remote satellite clinics so they wouldn't have to drive to the VA. And so that was sort of my aha moment. And I was saying, why am I spending so much time trying to drag my patients to come to the hospital every single week, which is unrealistic, right? Whether you're low income and you don't have a car, or even if you're a busy working professional like you right. and me, I don't have time to take you know, an hour off of work every week. And so at that time, I ran across what Amato was doing. So it was a very small you know, company. The founders had just come out of Rock Health. And I called them up and I said, you guys are doing exactly what I'm doing, but you're doing it online. And this is the only way you're going to bring this to millions of people. Right. And so that's how to, that's sort of, sort of the story of how I became a reluctant techie. So I, I spent all this time training to be a clinician scientist right. and, you know, developing these treatments, doing these treatments with patients. But I realized this is such a endemic problem. Yeah. How do you um, scale out you, one single clinician to, can you do that to hundreds of millions of people? Exactly. Right? And yeah. that, that's sort of your earlier point about sort of the limitations of clinical practice. I love working with patients. It's incredibly richly rewarding. Right. But you know, my mom is a public health nurse, and that, that was always in the back of my mind, which is if you really want to make a population-level impact, that's the beauty of technology. And that, that was sort of the motivation to help start Amata Health, was yeah. how can we take an evidence-based treatment, which is a diabetes prevention program, this big clinical trial was published in New England Journal of Medicine, validated dozens of times. And we know that if you get people to lose 5 to 10% of their body weight, their blood sugar levels come down, right. you reduce their risk of diabetes. And so we basically digitized this program. So we created like an online group therapy. Yeah, what were some of the key interventions there? Was it, because I know that, you know, a lot of the recent vogue in, in trend topics is ketogenic diets, but it seemed like that wasn't necessarily like a key part of it, or, or was it? That's like, a great question. So the the DPP, or the Diabetes Prevention Program, right. it was originally developed in the 1990s. Okay. And then the, the trial was published in 2002. And it's interesting because that's how slow sort of science moves. Yeah. You had this $10 million from NIH and CDC to run these huge studies. Right. And at the time, you know, it was sort of a low-fat diet. They actually instructed, believe it or not, people to count their fat grams and cut it down to a certain level. Right. Um, which we know now, because the science has sort of progressed, it's sort of a questionable recommendation. Yeah. Now, they still benefited from the intervention. Fifty-eight. Um, they had a 58% reduction in development of type 2 diabetes over right. the course of three years, mostly because they lot, lost a lot of weight. And obviously, if you lose body fat, you're going to reduce your risk of diabetes. Yeah. I mean, just sound like people just got smarter on their consumption, right? Just even telling people to track, like count your calories, I think just probably shifts people's behavior to a more healthy diet. Even though like the macro ratio of fat versus carbs probably wasn't necessarily ideal. In, in, in you know 20 30 years ago but like at least making people count probably in general helped absolutely the interesting thing about that study actually is the the so-called placebo or control group wasn't right. actually a placebo they actually told people to lose weight and the thing is we know what happens when you tell people hey go diet and exercise which is what every doctor tells their yeah. patients to do on your own good luck they never do right, right? The, what the effective part of the DPP was, to your question, was really the behavior change strategies that were used. So 
um, obviously we're trying to get them to focus on their diet, their exercise, their stress, and their sleep. But what they did is they had a weekly session and it was um, either individual or group based in some right. of the later studies. And we found that when you have a lot of social support, you have other people going through what you're going through, you can relate to them. Maybe there's a little bit of a competition aspect where, you know, I see Jeff and he's like doing really well. And I feel like, oh, okay, if he can do it, then I can do it yeah. too. So that's basically what we did at Amato. We created online group therapy. We matched people into these groups of about um, 12 to 24 people and paired them with a health coach. And the health coach was sort of like their group leader that would facilitate this behavior change. Yeah. And then we'd give them hardware devices. We gave them a wireless weight scale. We gave them a pedometer they could wear. Yeah. Um, and so that they could track their data, as you were saying, so they can quantify this and have measurable goals where they're trying to hit, for instance, 7,500 steps this week, or they're trying to uh, improve their dietary intake yep. um, to be less processed foods. And so the, it was the combination of a lot of things. It was the social support of the group. It's the individualized counseling from the health coach. It's an evidence-based curriculum where we're giving very concrete recommendations about diet and exercise and using this technology, right? Using right. These, these quantitative sort of quantified self measures so that they can track their progress and see that every day when they log in. Am I getting to my sort of five to 10% weight loss goal? Yeah, I think people need that short-term feedback loop. I think, as we all know, humans are not very good at being like, okay, a five-year goal, I'm going to like work towards it if you don't see like a daily or at least like a weekly progress update. I, I'm actually, you know, what you said about the social group dynamic, such an, I, I, that rings very true to me. I think if you look at, uh, you know, our WeFast intermittent fasting community or the community we've built up with, with our company, it's such a powerful intervention. I, I think you know, humans are naturally social creatures. And if people around you are pushing you to be healthier or be more thoughtful, um, it's almost like today's culture is telling you to be unhealthful, right? Like we're getting bombarded with consumption ads on like basically not healthy stuff, right? Like you're being told to like eat a lot and like go party essentially with like cool alcohol ads, right? So yeah. I think, you know, in some ways I see communities built around more healthy lifestyles is just counter programming of traditional consumer packaged goods company just bombarding you to consume more oh totally i actually think it's uh more unpopular to eat healthy than it is to eat unhealthy i've actually had this <laughs> in my personal social experience so I, I follow a ketogenic diet okay and i kind of drift in and out of ketosis right in that when i go out i'm not as strict and this is on purpose socially because I get more sort of questions and flack about why, why are you eating like this? Yeah. And the reason I think it makes people uncomfortable is because it's almost like people looking into a mirror and it makes them uncomfortable. When someone's eating healthy in front of you and you're making unhealthy choices. It's like, screw this guy. Exactly. <laughs> it feels like there's a there's an implicit judgment right. that's being passed. Or be right. like, oh, wow, you, you, now you're making me uncomfortable about right. it. So I got to like call you out on it. Yeah. But if I eat unhealthy, nobody ever says a thing, right? Right. So that's, that's the unfortunate thing about our culture. It's this very obesogenic culture, um, both from a social standpoint, right? So there's lots of studies showing that, you know, your immediate friend group circle, if they're obese, you're statistically much more likely to be yep. obese. The other part of it, though, that I think in, in reference to your earlier question about why have the obesity and diabetes rates skyrocketed so much is that I actually directly implicate big food companies as being responsible. And it's interesting. You look back at the big tobacco companies in the mm -hmm. 1980s. And, you know, they uh, very rightly were vilified because they were, 
you know, a, a significant part in causing lung cancer in America. And fortunately, at least in places like California, where smoking is banned in most places, we've seen smoking rates decline. Yep. But these big companies, because of all their advertising, their commercials, part of the culture to be cool and smoke, influenced human behavior yep. in a very direct way. And I think big food companies have done this in a way that people don't realize, right? Because people always realize that smoking was kind of sort of a drug. But people don't really see foods as dr drugs. But they truly are. And if, if anyone sort of doesn't believe this, I encourage them to read this great article in the New York Times. It's called The Science of Junk Food, where they actually interviewed food scientists. And it's fascinating because they're taking these techniques from science and they're literally A-B testing, or like sort of doing these <laughs> randomized controlled trials to, to create things like Lunchables or Cheetos, where they go through 43 iterations of it to make sure it's the right taste and the right texture to make it as literally addictive as possible, right? Yeah. So it's melting in your mouth at a rate that's faster than you can actually detect the amount of calories on purpose, right? So these huh. people are yeah. creating what I call designer drugs. So these ultra-processed foods, in my opinion, are actually designer drugs that are addictive. And a colleague of mine at Harvard Medical School, Deirdre Barrett, wrote this book on, um, she calls it supernormal stimuli. And it's really just a fancy word for, you know, in our evolutionary history, we've always been designed to sort of crave fats and sweets right because fats uh help they're us relatively sort of, scarce yeah exactly they're scarce yeah. and you know you don't know when your next meal is coming right. and you know the fruit helps fatten you up for the winter right um and so we're naturally drawn to that but when you refine sugar and you put it all over you know a glazed donut when you have carbs on carbs it's actually a, a, an addictive it's a super normal stimuli that's beyond anything that exists in nature and we can't help but irresistibly be drawn to it, Yeah. right? And so you have this stuff that's all over the market. You can't get away from it. Even in every single office, there's cakes and cookies like every day, every time I talk to my patients, that they, it's hard for them to literally get away from it. Yeah. And so I really see obesity and diabetes as uh, a result of this big food infused sort of environment. And when we live in this high stress culture, people have this difficulty with what we call as psychologists, emotional eating. Emotional eating is a hugely prevalent thing where this is how a lot of Americans deal with their stress, loneliness, uh, boredom, um, any sort of negative emotions. We suppress it through eating sort of especially these like high sugar uh, foods Absolutely. that give us that sort of serotonin <laughs> hit. Yeah, no, I, I think that again, like I think while I was fasting, you can really pick up on those behaviors because without the, without eating, you realize that food and eating such a pleasurable, as you're saying, like you release serotonin, you release dopamine when you eat. And like by not eating for upwards of seven days, which we did in, in January, you really are sensitive to that. And, and you're really sensitive to the fact that a lot of the times when you are hungry, you're not actually hungry, you're just bored. You want to just do something. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people just end up conflating that. And then it's like, okay, I'm constantly snacking. So I'm constantly kind of stressed out or bored. Exactly. And that's one of the first things that we, uh, we teach patients when we're working with them in um, an intervention sort of context is differentiating what's between sort of genuine hunger right. and other, other sort of emotions that can sort of mask that, right? right. If it's, if it's uh, anxiety, uh, loneliness, or fatigue. A lot of times we even eat because we're tired, right? We're a chronically sleep-deprived culture. <laughs> and, you know, we use carbohydrates and caffeine oftentimes to sort of mask right. that underlying sleep deprivation. Right. And so food serves much more in our culture than just providing us with calories to live. It literally satiates our emotions. It provides us with social connections. It tries to give us like a pick-me-up right. um, at the end of the day. And so no wonder it's so hard yeah. for us to get away from it. I'm curious about like your point around like big food being this 
crazy string puller. I mean, uh, so Gary Taubes was on our show a few months back, and he wrote an interesting book basically litigating, you know, uh, sort of sugar, big sugar as a key driver in all these metabolic and in, in, in obesity effects that we see in society today. And it's it's interesting because I think um, on one hand, do you, like it, it seems overly conspiracy theory to, to imagine that, you know, there's a group of folks that sort of plotting with food, with, with medicine and all these systems of regulation with FDA, you know, right, you know, pushing carb heavy diets um, you know, what is your sort of analysis on the space? It seems like a lot of people locally try to do good, but it ends up, the incentives are in a, in a weird way where it ends up being this very bad in, institutional structure. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think at a certain local points, right, I, I guess like the food scientist is trying to make a living by like selling more product, but I don't necessarily think that they're trying to kill people. But maybe I'm being overly naive. Yeah, I mean, no, what do you I, think? I don't think it's like a conspiracy theory. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> I try to focus on the evidence. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is as a scientist who's actually gotten into the food industry, right. literally you learn how the sausage is made, you realize that, you know, there's two big drivers when people are sort of producing products. And the two big drivers are taste and cost. Right. That's that's sort of what the, they're trying to optimize yeah. for. Right. Because there's such a concern that if you produce a product, it has to obviously taste good. Right. Because otherwise it won't sell. Yeah. And you're trying to maximize your margins in terms of making a profit. And so you're using oftentimes the cheapest ingredients that you can. And it's interesting when you get into the business, you know, I was talking to actually like a, someone in the food industry and their recommendation was, hey, if you're producing something for a dollar, be ready for it to sell at four if you're going to try to sell it at Whole Foods because you got to pay the manufacturer to make it. You got to pay the distributor to distribute it. Broker, distributor, retail exactly. markup. Yeah, it's like 50, per, uh, 100% each time. So what yeah. you make in your, you know, your the healthy food you make in your kitchen, if you're trying to commercialize that. It's often not economically viable. And right. so I think sometimes even good people end up sort of in a very Machiavellian way, part of this food system, end up sort of cutting corners, using cheaper ingredients, or making sure that it's just, okay, we're going to optimize for taste right. instead of health. So that's the interesting that I sort of actually, thesis that I've sort of developed in, in working over the years, is that I actually think processed food is a technology. And it's a technology that's one as a technology. And um, uh, a colleague, Daryush Mozafarian, who's the Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, uh, former uh, advisor to Omada Health, um, actually published a study that showed that the standard American diet, or what I call SAD, because it is truly is SAD, yeah. is 70% processed or ultra-processed food, 70%. So we're only eating 30% whole foods. Okay. And the funny thing is, if you look at sort of dietary intervention, what's the recommendation that, that most clinicians make, which is, hey, Go back to eating whole foods. Right. Go back to eating 100% whole foods. The right. Michael Pollan philosophy, right? Eat real food, not a lot, mostly plants. And it's totally accurate and completely unrealistic, in my opinion. Because I think it's a technology processed food that's, that's released out into the wild, and we're never going to let that cat go back in the bag. And the reason is yeah. that technology is, is cheaper, it's tastier, and most importantly, it's more convenient. Even yeah. when sort of these sort of uh, microwaved foods, ready-made foods came out in the 50s and we had sort of housewives that had more time to, uh, you know, cook foods at home, they still did really well in the market because people are tired, people are overwhelmed, they want faster, easier solutions. And it's a completely unrealistic notion that the majority of 
you know, modern Americans. We're going to spend three hours in the kitchen every day, like cooking some nice like chicken stew or something. Exactly. Yeah. So I actually, on this topic, have a blog post coming out this week and it's a kind of a controversial sort of radical manifesto and it's the cure for obesity and diabetes is processed food. Smarter processed food. Exactly. Smarter (laughs) processed food. Because instead of trying to optimize for taste and trying to make it as addictive as possible or as cheap as possible, processed food isn't intrinsically actually unhealthy. It depends on what the processing is and what the intention behind it is, right? So butter is a processed food, right? Like people can churn butter. Yogurt is a processed food. We're adding bacteria to sort of, um, you know, ferment milk. Um, And these are obviously healthy. These are sort of like minimally processed foods. And in fact, enhance sometimes the food. There's there's uh, studies that show that, for instance, fermented dairy as as opposed to sort of standard dairy uh, is associated with even greater diabetes risk reduction. Mm. Okay. Um, and so if you, and this is sort of my thesis and, and sort of the, the, you know, impetus for me to start this new company, Actualize, if you actually create healthy processed food that's optimized for nutritional benefit, for health, um, you get sort of the best of both worlds. You get things that are cost effective, that are convenient, because the reality is like half of Americans either don't eat breakfast or they're uh, grabbing it and eating it on the go. Right. Right. And so coming back and like telling people, okay, come back and, you know, have a, make an omelet every day before you go to work is not realistic, unfortunately, for most people who work nine to five right. jobs. And so the idea for this product was, um, can you create sort of a low carb, high fat, which is in line with the ketogenic diet meal replacement for people so that if they don't have time to have breakfast, they can sort of have something that's on the go that only has two grams of net carbs and is going to be a healthy choice. Yeah, let's take a look. So I think, like, especially for all the audience in Silicon Valley, so we've seen, you know, like the growth of Soylent, and I think you see other smaller companies like Ample start making, I, I, I think, sort of an, the same initial goals, right? Like, I think a healthier, more convenient food. So what is uh, the killer feature here? The, the big difference is, I, in, you know, um, looking out in the market, it's the world's first nutritionally complete ketogenic meal replacement. So the other stuff that's on the market is very high in carbohydrates, right? So if you look at most of the meal replacements on the market, they're full of starches and sugars that I would never recommend to a patient if yeah. they care about their blood sugar levels, if they care about losing weight or losing body fat, uh, and certainly anyone who's concerned about, you know, their metabolic health. So this was specifically formulated to minimize the amount of carbohydrates. That's why it's only two net grams per serving. And, and I think just to give folks context, that's, that's very good. And I think, you know, you know, Rob Reinhardt from Soylent, I've asked him about, people have asked him about ketogenic Soylent for a long time. And his answer was always that to get it to that kind of macro, like, you know, something of this macro ratio, you needed to put a ton of oil into it. So it's like not very good. So what was, you know, how... How'd you get the macro ratio in, in such a way where you, it wasn't just like drinking oil? Yeah, a lot of experimentation is the cool. answer to that. Um, well, part of it was actually taking inspiration from nature. You know, the funny thing is, you know, when, when sort of Soylent came out and, um, you know, it was obviously sort of a controversial thing to, to sort of say, hey, you can live off powdered food and yeah. replace real food. It's a great marketing strategy for them, and I give them credit for that. Yeah. Um, obviously sort of not, not realistic for the majority. Most majority of people aren't living off powder, and I would never recommend that. Obviously, if you can eat whole on processed food, absolutely you should try to maximize that whenever you can. Right. And for every other time when you don't have the time, you don't have the energy, you don't have the means to eat healthy, yeah, you should try to find a healthier option, including yeah. this or anything else that sort of fits that 
um, fits that sort of thesis. So how we made it work is there's a lot of sort of experimentation that went into place. And if you think about it, you know, the people sort of have this visceral reaction to like powdered food is not real food. Yeah. Um, but if you think about uh, it, every single human being has basically in the first year of their life uh, lived off of a meal replacement, which is your mother's breast milk. Right. So even if you you either had your mother's breast milk or you had a powdered formula, sure. Uh, if your mom, um, you know, was working and didn't have the opportunity to provide that to you, and it was nutritionally and literally every single human being has lived off of it, right? Yep. So nature, in all of its glory, has sort of found the right sort of you know ratios to do that. Now, breast milk in particular is high in lactose because babies are growing and they don't care about putting on weight; they're yep. trying to put on weight yep. in, in particular. But the major fat um, in milk is obviously cream, and right. so we're using uh, cream. Um, as the fat source and also coconut oil. So those are the, the major cool. sort of fats. And then the proteins are actually inspired by breast milk, which is a, it's a 50-50 blend of whey and casein, which is the exact ratio in sort of late stage breast milk huh. um, that helps um, a growing child grow. And cool. so um, that, that was sort of the original design from it. And then, you know, the rest of it is sort of in, uh, inspired by, you know, uh, nutritional science and making sure that it's nutritionally complete. So it has all the vitamins, all of the minerals, all of the electrolytes that you theoretically could subsist on it. And that's right. why we, we say on the package, you know, like you can replace any meal, don't replace right. every meal. I'm actually curious, have you looked at the peer study that was published in The Lancet around, you're talking about just reducing refined, car or just reducing carbohydrate intake. It's a super interesting study where it showed, uh, the, the, the headline is essentially, uh, you know, folks would live longer, uh, uh, well, I think it's a very nuanced article or, 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 or assumptions or results to be taken from just a broad study. But the, the high level was 155,000 people across, I think, 13 developed nations tracking their macronutrient uh, breakdown and seeing uh, overall mortality and cardiovascular disease incidences. And the headline was essentially uh, folks on super low fat diets had higher rates of mortality. Um, it, but it doesn't necessarily imply that ketogenic was super healthy because the lowest quintile of uh, carb intake was still like 50% or 45% carb. Yeah. So it was like 45% carb to like 75% carb. And the 45% carb group had uh, long, you know, basically lived longer, had lower rates of cardiovascular incidences, which was interesting because it sort of uh, was evidence towards the notion around, again, low fat perhaps being overly demonized not necessarily over swing to being high fat as great because i think a lot of the zero carb keto people i think were overly excited by that result but if you look at the actual macro breakdown 45 percent carbs is much much higher than oh, totally. what, what a ketogenic person would, would, would recommend but i think you know these studies are showing that uh simple notions of macronutrient recommendations uh it's just not that simple yeah yeah. I mean, that, that's the challenge. If you actually talk to, you know, uh, most scientists and my colleagues and you ask them and like uh, a, even a simple question, like, is this food healthy? The, the, the answer that always we say is it depends. depends. Yeah. Right. Because it, healthy compared to what? Right? right. What's the opportunity cost that you're switching out? Yeah. Um, and, every, and it depends on the context. Right. Like is having like a, a small amount of carbohydrates um, you know, bad? Well, it depends on your individual carbohydrate tolerance, right? If you're diabetic, maybe it's probably not a great choice. Right. If you are have zero predisposition to diabetes, you, you're very, very active, it may actually be enhancing for your workouts yep. if you're doing sort of a high-intensity um, sort of lifting. So that's, that's why it does depend. But it's nice to see these studies, especially with these very large sample sizes coming out, 
that are sort of swaying the public opinion, and, and particularly, I would say, the, the opinion of the medical community. It's fascinating to me, as, as being someone who publishes papers and, and is a clinician that's still working with people, um, you know, I, I talked to colleagues who worked in managed care organizations, and they're still recommending, like, stuff from 20 years ago. Yeah. And it's only with a lot of times these very large studies that get newsworthy results, right? It has to be published in New England Journal, Lancet, for a lot of, unfortunately, doctors to pay attention to that. Yep. But it slowly is, I think, swaying the opinion and the guidelines that they're recommending yeah. to, as an organization to their patients and saying, okay, well, you know, maybe a quarter of your plate doesn't need to be whole grains. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that's like the standard, you know, recommendation. That's the, you know, USDA that, you know, we've been fighting against. Yep. I'm saying, well... Not necessarily anything wrong with that, but like it's not mandated. You not you don't have to eat a quarter grain. It's kind of a ridiculous notion, yeah. right? I mean, for the sp- aspiring medical professionals out there, I think you've mentioned it a few times. But it's an interesting spot you're in, where you're a practicing clinician and an active academic. So how and, and it's a relatively rare position to be in, I would say, where most people are just practicing doctors or than academia. How are you able to navigate? Uh, sort of the best of both worlds in your career. I know that, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, you would need, you know, I'm actually curious to actually actually dive into it. So you're a PhD, but you also did like, uh, you know, a a clinical fellowship, but you didn't, but you don't have an MD. What what are all the different, like, you know, nomenclatures and and qualifications in this realm? Yeah, you know, it's it's, uh, it's a confusing result of our academic system. (laughs) So I'm I'm a clinical psychologist, but I actually am a professor of psychiatry. And the the difference between psychologist and psychiatrist um, is subtle in that uh, psychologists mostly focus on psychotherapy. Psychiatrists focus mostly on psychopharmacology or medication management. So when I train psychiatry residents at UCSF, I'm focusing on training them in psychotherapy or evidence-based therapies because they they get that to sort of round out their training. They go to medical school. Um, We do something that's actually structured more like an MD-PhD program in that half of my training was on um, doing research. So half of my colleagues are scientists. And then the other half of it was actually uh, training as a clinician. So half of my other colleagues are in practice treating patients. And this is your professorship? Um, so this, uh, is, this, this is, is my your, this training is your... in graduate school. Okay, so this, this is, is your... why even psychologists do residencies and fellowship trainings, okay. just like any other um, physician, dentist, pharmacist, okay. uh, you know, allied sort of healthcare professionals. And you can think of psychologists as like an allied healthcare professional. Okay. So how I sort of, you know, yeah, you're right in the sense that how I sort of set up my career is a little bit unique in that um, it's more 80-20, I would say. So 80%, I'm, I am like a full-time entrepreneur. So I'm very much full-time in the digital health uh, industry. And then because I went to the bother of getting overeducated, <laughs> I try to keep my, my license active and sort of that clinical part of my brain active. So one, one day a week, um, I train the psychiatry residents at UCSF. Um, which is an absolute pleasure to do. I, I joke I have the best teaching job in the world because I teach 24th grade, which is actually true. My <laughs> yeah. residents like literally are the, in the equivalent of 24th grade because they went through four years of medical school for, um, and their four years, four years of college, four years of medical school, and their, their fourth year of residency. Wow. Um, some of them are actually older than, than I am, so I have to be extra buttoned up <laughs> when I go over there. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, I do maintain a small private practice. These days it's actually more focused on executive coaching so I work with a lot of Silicon Valley, actually, um, executives and CEOs, because um, you know I'm in the rare position of being a uh, both a so clinical you can write psychologist too. 
No, focus on therapy. Okay. Focus on coaching. Um, and it's mostly focused on how can I enhance sort of their individual well-being? Because obviously, and you can empathize, I'm sure, you know, with, with this, it's a lot of pressure being a CEO, being um, a Silicon Valley executive. And how do you maintain your individual well-being when you're going through this crazy, chaotic growth of a company? Right. Um, and so ha- having been on both sides of the table of being a, a executive in a health te- healthcare technology company, and also a clinician, I think I can sort of empathize with, with both sides. And now being an uh, entrepreneur and a CEO of Actualize. So, I mean, I mean, you filled a lot of different shoes. I mean, how would you, uh, you know, do the pros and cons of each? I mean, it sounds like obviously you're making a decision to, to go in this direction for a reason. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, how, how would you sort of you know, describe your evolution as, as a person here? Yeah, I mean, if you asked me 10 years ago if I that I, you know, if you told me 10 years ago that I'd be sitting in Silicon Valley working in tech, I, I would have said, boy, I probably made some poor life decisions. <laughs> I would have never, never expected it. And, um, you know, I think you can only plan ahead so much. You know, I think the the reality is, and this is sort of like a Steve Jobs philosophy of, of you know, in hindsight, you connect all the dots and it kind of makes sense. And that I, I always sort of pursued things that captured my intellectual curiosity. And that even when I was back in college, you know, um, I was fascinated, as I said, with mind-body medicine. And I'm still kind of doing that. Maybe not in the way that I thought I would be doing, but um, it kind of makes sense. Even when I was in college at Harvard, I paid for a lot of my tuition by because I was really into mountain climbing and I had a a mountain climbing apparel uh, company and I would sell stuff online because I was buying mountain climbing clothes and I'd sell to people all over the world to, you know, just pay for my books and my tuition. And I never, I never thought about that because I was like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I did it because I loved climbing and I needed to pay my tuition and, and, you know, it just kind of came at a natural outgrowth of that. So kind of connecting the dots, seeing sort of the stuff I was doing in college and the stuff I'm doing now, it's like, well, yeah, maybe that was sort of a, a natural predisposition or of interest that I had and it sort of manifested in a certain way so I would say half of it was logical in the sense that you know I I sort of carefully thought about opportunities and and when I was blessed to be in the right place at the right time and find dumb luck and you know um, finding great companies like Omada that have you know grown to 300 people raised 127 million sort of the leading digital health company in the space I'm fortunate you know and that some of this happened through serendipity and then the other half of it I would say was largely through intuition. You know, the interesting thing is being a sort of clinician scientist where you're trained on both sides is as a scientist, you're obviously super rational. You know, you're very data driven, you're very empirical. And obviously I'm very logical in a lot of the decisions that I make in my life. But when you're training as a clinician and you're working with people, I I remember some of my supervisors when we're learning, for, for instance, about personality disorders, they would teach us to actually listen to our intuition and like, how do I feel in the room when I'm with that person, Hmm. right? If I'm like bored with someone, I'm like probably a narcissist, right? <laughs> like I don't feel like I, you know, they're acknowledging yeah. my humanity here in right. the room. And it would, you know, you could go by the DSM, you could go by literally the Bible of psychiatric diagnoses and say, okay, do they have these three or four hallmark symptoms? Or you could listen to sort of your intuition because it, it is another form of intelligence that's telling you things. Right. And so, um, and sometimes the bigger decisions that I made in my life, whether personal or professional, I, I definitely listen to my intuition, you know, um, in, in, sort of what my heart is telling me to do and so sort of that's sort of yeah, how I, I mean you're pattern things. matching some unconscious like processing <laughs> right it's like all right this feels like it's right and i think that's you know what my sense of intuition is, is it is basically like your un your subconscious sort of surfacing up like these these small patterns it's like okay kind of like this feels like the right thing to do 
Absolutely. And I, I feel very fortunate to be where I am and, and so lucky to uh, be able to work with great people and make an impact. Yeah. So where does this go? So like, obviously, this is like a new product launch. It, it sounds like it's a pretty recent. I know the last time we were chatting, it was this week. You get you get the, the benefit this, of uh, yeah, being okay. the, the first to announce it. Yeah. Cool. Then. All right. We're, we're scooping the launch of actualized <laughs> keto meals. Um, awesome. So where does this go from here? So obviously, we're going to get a bunch of people that start trying using them, getting uh, getting healthier. Where does this evolve? Yeah, so this is sort of the first, um, the the first of hopefully many products. And the, there's, there's just talk a little bit about the sort of the greater vision and mission of the company. Um, you know, I I really see it as actually more of a thought leadership platform around mind and body health, right? Which is like my original interest in that. Um, you know, the, the fascinating thing about sort of technology and social media is there's so many of these influencers that yeah. are popping up. And it's kind of this wild west of snake oil. It's coming from it from a clinician's <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Sometimes there's really great content out there and there's some really questionable stuff out there, right? Like every time I see like these posts out there, I'm not going to name names, but you know, when people are like, oh, gain 34 pounds of muscle in like one month or that. It's just not know, physiologically possible. It's just not. Like yeah. you, you talk to anyone who's just an expert in physiology or sports. <laughs> you're like, it's, no, it's just not possible. It's right. misleading. Um, and so it really um, heightened my awareness that there's obviously a huge consumer demand for health information, right? People want to know how to be healthier. They want to know, um, you know, evidence space. Like, what's the real way that I can have a better diet? Like, what should I be eating? How should I be exercising? How can I be more happy and fulfilled as a human yeah. being? Um, and so the demand is really there. And But there's also a need for it to come from a place of, you know, genuineness, not hype, no bullshit, no gimmicks, um, and to actually like a thoughtful practitioner, practitioner, right? Like you actually have actual experience treating people. Exactly, right. And so th that's that's sort of the greater vision for the company. So I've been blogging. I put out a blog post, um, you know, every month, and I've been doing that even before I launched the company. It was just honestly as an exercise and fun, and also because I was doing a lot of like organizational psychology work right. um, so I was advising a lot of companies and building their company culture and that was sort of the fascinating thing these you have these great Silicon Valley companies and unfortunately there's examples like uber in the in the press of sort of company cultures going wrong and so I was applying sort of a clinical lens of like why why do we see this bad behavior and how do we remedy it right um, and I think you actually can through behaviorism right there's you know every sort of behavior, response to rewards and punishments and there's organizational ways through performance management and other things huh. to control that so i wrote a couple art articles on this they got an amazing amount of um, very fortunate um, readership like one of my articles got like a million views on sort of company culture and so it kind of heightened my um, uh, interest in putting out content around mind and body health and educating you know people uh, about the various things that they can do to actualize or realize sort of the potential um, to you know, maximize their mind and body health, and then come out with sort of sort of what I call science-based products that are you know genuinely researched. Um, have you have a strong degree of confidence that they're going to be uh, effective? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, I, that resonates a lot with how we think about building out the community at Human as well. Where yes, like. They're, like healthcare today is clearly broken, right? It's six of GDP on healthcare. No one's really happy with it. People are searching for advice and lifestyle changes. And yeah, I, I think I had some of the sim similar realization where just like some 
BS people just saying some kind of dumb stuff. And it was like, wow, people are listening to this. Why can't we improve it? I just see that we need more voices that are thoughtful, that are science and evidence driven to help change the culture and our understanding of, of nutrition. So I think if there's any platform that we can help grow, grow together, I think it's like just net good for, for the world. Oh, yeah, so, totally. absolutely. I mean, let's just like I, I think it's really just like us slowly moving society in, in a more positive direction around our, around our own biology. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I love what you guys are doing. I think it's so interesting when you, you take examples of things like tea where, you know, it's a natural plant-based product that has, you know, caffeine and theanine. And you talk to most people, they have no idea what theanine is. So if you don't know what theanine is, uh, theanine is a, a chemical compound that's naturally occurring in tea. And it helps sort of counterbalance the stimulant effects of caffeine, which yeah. is why most people know like coffee is a lot more jittery than, than tea. And the reason for that, a large reason for that is because theanine occurs in tea and it helps counterbalance that and so it's nice that when you take products that are sort of inspired by nature that are in influenced by the science right. that show there's actually a, a lot of good research papers showing that sort of theanine has an anxiolytic or sort of anti-anxiety effect right yep. and you sort of formulate that and put out products into the world where people can benefit from that i think the, the world sort of gets a net positive from that and you're educating people about you know, these supplements and these, these naturally occurring products that they, they might have never heard of, they might have taken, because a lot of people have taken tea, but they don't know that it can help sort of smooth out, especially if they're a habitual caffeine user, you know, that experience for them. So I definitely agree with you. The, the world needs sort of more exposure to, you know, this, this cornucopia of, of uh, food, nutrition, supplements that are out there, especially if they're really informed by the science. Yeah, and hopefully just do it in a way that's informed by data. Absolutely. Right? I think it's like there's people that can make claims all the time and it's just like, okay, can we build communities that really elevate transparency and data beyond just straight marketing uh, dollars? And I think that will be what the industry looks like in the future where I think your, uh, your, 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 your general mills of the world um, essentially are marketing machines built on top of yeah, technology, foods, processed foods on science that are 50, 100 years old, yeah, right? And I think that, you know, my intuition is that these companies, these industries will look more and more like tech where there will be a lot more R&D and the results from their research would be the best use of marketing rather than just like ads showing like a cartoon tiger dancing around. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully. Well, that's hope. my hope at least. I mean, I think that's the that's intuition. I think that will be sort of the broad macro trend that drives a lot of these shifts in, in how the economic structures you know, you know, organize the current uh, players in the, in the space. Yeah. You know, I, I, the, the unfortunate thing is we, we live in this area of social media that's sort of so influenced by this sort of um, BuzzFeed-like approach where just <laughs> capturing people's attention through yep. clickbait. You know, it works, right? And this is these are actually like psychological techniques, right? Yep. So like, you know, if you look back in like the 1900s, um, you know, like, uh, some of the early behaviorists um, got into advertising and they'd apply these sort of social psychology techniques to sort of capturing attention um, a little bit of in an excessive way. Right. But I think it can sort of be, um, you know, applied for good in that um, I think there really is a hunger out there by consumers for genuineness in companies, right? So as opposed to like the giant sort of big food companies that are sending the dancing tigers and giving you the whole <laughs> song and dance. I think, you know, you're seeing these smaller companies that are sort of influencer driven, that are genuine, you know, they're mission driven companies. And that, that's sort of how I sort of differentiate, 
you know, both myself and and sort of the work that I do is that I'm I'm a very values driven person, right? Literally, the the therapy that I teach at UCSF is ACT. It's called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It's a values based therapy, and Actualize is a values based company. Literally, on our our website, you can check it out at goactualize.com. There's a section there that says values, and it's the ten values of our company. And one of the values that we actually espouse is that. Um, you are the guru. Like I, like I, as, as part of like doing this company, I don't want to be a guru, right? Because <laughs> I think the guru model is very sort of broken and if, if sort of abused is sort of harmful, right? Sure. And that people obviously will always have a need to have experts that can sort of distill science and make it fun and interesting and communicate Give some better frameworks how people think about it and navigate. Sure. Exactly, right? Yeah. But in the end, and this is what I tell all my patients when, I, when we're going through therapy is that you know, I, I know I'm successful in working with you when you no longer need me. My job is not to foster dependency, right? It's to make people their own therapist, right? right? And I think that's that's true for companies as well in that, you know, you, what you want to do is you want to put out thoughtful content. You want to put out evidence-based products that obviously enhance people's lives. But, you know, in the end, people are responsible for their own health, you know, and hopefully they'll take the parts that are effective for them the, you know, maybe it's this product, maybe it's not. Maybe it's uh, this thought leadership piece, and maybe it's the philosophy they got from somewhere else. And they're going to take what's useful, they're going to discard the rest, and they're going to use that in their own way, in a data-driven way, right, by testing it and seeing what works for them and find what works for them. Because there really is no one-size-fits-all one, you know, solution for anyone. And anyone who's telling you that is, uh, you know, probably drinking their own Kool-Aid. <laughs> and so I, I think I say that with a, a great degree of humility in that, you know, um, I, you know, I, the thing that I'm excited about, and I think, you know, we share this sort of vision in, in terms of our visions as, a com- as companies, is that there is this very, like, patient empowerment revolution that's happening in that, you know, in the old school world of healthcare, um, it is a sick care system. You'd only go to the doctor when you're really sick. And the doctor was sort of this apotheosized, godlike figure that was, like, sort of the expert. And it, it's not the way that I approach it. I, I see it as, like, if I'm working with someone, we're on equal playing fields. Obviously, I have expertise in, you know, um, some area that I can help and provide sort of an objective third party opinion. But we're sort of co-pilots. We're sort of navigating this. And I think companies that treat their customers in the same way are going to, in my opinion, be the most successful in the long term, which is we're providing platforms, we're providing products for people to enhance their own health and be empowered and responsible for their own health. um, Because that's that's honestly like what self-actualization is. Well said. Well said. There's nothing really more to add to that. Um, where can people follow and, and find and, and, and follow your progress here? So go actualize.com. Uh, you're on Twitter, Cameron Seppa. Yep. Um, and where else? Uh, our, our company is on um, all the social media at Go Actualize. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, a medium, LinkedIn you name it, it's out there. It's all go actualize. Um, so go actualize.com and go actualize on all the social media. So, um, check us out, um, like us, try our products, give us feedback. You know, we can always be better. I have a great humility about, um, you know, uh, constantly iterating and trying to, um, continually be better both as an individual, both as a company and, and the efforts that we're trying to bring to the world. And so we'd love to hear from people. hundred percent. So cool. Um, We'll definitely check in with you and probably in three, six months and see how the business goes and see what the latest stuff you're working on. In the meantime, if you have questions for uh, Dr. Seppa or any, you know, again, feedback for, for the human podcast, human enhancement podcast, you can find us on Apple, Google Play, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Cheers until next time.